Shut up and sit down. Hi, welcome to Outrageous, a bi-weekly podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris, I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friend, Trisha in LA. Hello! Hello. So, okay, listen, we've been on the phone already for an hour and we're like chatting and I was like, why don't we just record this? We have so much to talk about. It is, uh, by the time you've heard this, several tragedies, some terrible things have happened. We kind of want to have like this free-flowing conversation, just several questions that have come up from some of these things that have happened. We figured we'd let you in on it. Anyway, Trish, how are you? I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. Too. Yeah, I'm good. I've been I've been trying to read a lot more than I mm-hmm. have, but I'm obviously I read a lot because I'm on my phone a lot, and that's yeah. what you do is read on your phone. But I'm actually trying to read books. <laughs> oh, oh, a throwback. <laughs> I know. I tried to read a book the other day. I held it upside down. I dropped it back. I don't know. I don't know how to do it. I know, it's horrible. <laughs> so I'm reading this book. Everyone, and the author says, everyone is familiar with the slogan, the personal is political. Then she goes on to describe it, what she means. But I wanted to ask you. And by she, we're talking about Angela Davis. Let's... Well, no, I'm going to context the books. I was going to go back there. Damn. Sorry. Because because you give it away. By Once you mention her name, you already kind of know what she's probably going to say. Okay, so. Go ahead. You wanted to ask me. Start. start <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry. But no. Uh, <laughs> you your whole thing. No, no, that's cool. But so when you hear that phrase, the personal is political, what does that mean? It means that the personal choices that I have, the personal opinions that I have do not exist in isolation. Mm-hmm. So if I decide that I want to live in a certain neighborhood or there's neighborhoods I don't want to live in, it's easy to be like, oh, I'm not, I'm not doing this for any political or any racial or economic reason. It's just what I prefer. That there is no preference when you live in a society where we all have to live with each other. Everything about us is political because we're part of a fabric. I think in some ways that was similarly my interpretation too. Is that your choices are informed by context. So then, if that's the case, why do people say, let's not make this political whenever an issue arises? Like, whether it's about freedom of religion or any any kind of sort of broad cultural moment. Or massacre. Yeah, like a massacre happens or, you know, like maybe like a police shooting or every time something like that, people seem to want to take it as like a singular moment. And like, let's just deal with this tragedy in the moment. Let's just cry about the tragedy or let's just let's just ponder this thing that this person's revealing. Why are you bringing politics into it? That's usually the rebuff. Like, oh, let's not make this political. But that doesn't make sense if you, if you I, trust I, that phrase, a personal is a political. Well, I mean, first of all, you have to trust that phrase. I think a lot of people would disagree. A lot of people would disagree. They're like, oh, I'm just sending my kids to this school because it's a better school. Without stopping to think like, what makes it a better school? How does it become a better school? You know, how does it operate in a way to, to get better, quote unquote, students, people aren't actually on that level. So I think what people mean when they say like, oh, let's not make this political is what I always hear is that like, you're not willing to make the change. I think what that means when people say that is that, and usually it's after a tragedy, is that somehow mourning the victims and remembering them is important, which it is. 
but they would rather ignore the root of the problem. Now, this happens very much when it comes to gun violence, right? Because of this country's stance on guns. But what I'm what I'm trying to think about as you're asking me this question, are there other tragedies that have happened where we try very hard not to politicize them? I guess so the recent um, natural disasters. Yeah. Yep. But I don't hear so much of that, like, let's not politicize this tragedy. Yeah, yeah, there so is a little much. bit. There is a little bit of it because a little bit, what, but not as much around gun around gun violence. Like while people are getting mowed down, they're like, oh, this has nothing to do with politics or access to guns or healthcare. Like, no one wants to talk about any of that. But but there are hints of it. There there are hints of it when um natural disasters happen. Because, for example, one of the things that people talk about, say in in Houston, right? The flooding that happened in Texas. One of the issues somebody tried to raise was the notion that it was the way things were built up in Houston that made the flooding worse. The flooding may not have been avoided, but there were elements of it that could have been made better if we had constructed the city differently, which is actually a political choice, Mm -hmm. right? But if you raise that in the midst of people suffering, people go, oh, no, 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 let's just focus on, um, let's just focus on bringing them food. Let's just focus on giving them shelter. Da, da, da. But the reality was it would not have been as severe if choices had been made when you were engaging politically. In this a- is an interesting question. What is that okay. helplessness about? Because it, it, it reads to me as helplessness. Well, let like, me just. Oh, my house was destroyed. Oh, my kids were killed. Oh, this terrible thing has happened, but let's not make it political. When things are systemic or systematic, then we want to make them political right away, right? That's the heart of that rejection. For example, voting, entirely a political thing. But you start talking about yeah, how yes. you want... Yeah, right? But I mean, that's the whole idea of votes, right? Voting is about, yes. a poli- is, is about engaging... Is the- yeah. Exactly. It's about engaging in the political process. That's a very act of voting. Except when you start talking about why you're going to vote and who you're going to vote for. And then people say, you know what? Let's just not let politics separate us. Because in some strange way, people, I think there's a failure to recognize that your political choices are necessarily going to have an impact on another person. And people want to bring their individualism fully into every aspect of their life without having to think about the other. And I think that's why people say... The worst part is that when you said that, it felt true to me. Right? Because I think that's what it is. I think when somebody said, let's not make it political, they want to say, let's not make the choice I made be about some some problem that you're going to end up having. It's ignoring the fact that the person was political. Exactly. The thing that Angela Davis was getting at, let me just what she says, which I thought was really interesting. She says, not only that we experience on a personal level has profound political implications, but that our interior or emotional lives are very much informed by ideology. So she says, we often do the work of the state in and through our interior lives. So like, and so this is the extension of this idea is that what people assume is something that's just embedded in them they don't recognize it as something that is encouraged in them through indoctrination. I hadn't thought of it that way. Like I naturally assumed the politics of the personal is exactly the thing that we're discussing. But the thing that I hadn't done was that next step, which is how is my internal life 
feeding into certain ideas that didn't come from me, but came from a kind of indoctrination around me. What do we do about that? Can we, how would we get the message across to people that someone getting a gun and mo- like just shooting at 500 people is political because we allow it to happen? And the same thing with like when people are like dying of cancer and can't get health care. Like it's not about getting a Kickstarter to pay for their stuff. Oh, I hate to be so pessimistic, but I think the dark part is just that in this country in particular, we don't really have a culture of helping each other out. So, and that's what politics are for. That's what government's for. It's uh, spreading resources amongst people. I just don't think that we're interested in doing that. So well, when it comes to tragedy yeah. from this sort of thing, like we don't want to see the systemic, unless it's some black person does anything, then it's all about like, we need stronger, we need more cops. We need to have more jail, like, that's usually the way that goes. Because when you think about all the black men who have been killed by police, right? Mm-hmm. No one's actually being like, let's not make this political. Mm-hmm. It's extremely political. And people on both sides of that argument are like, we, you know, some people are like, we need more of this thing, body cams, whatever. And some people it's like, we need more, that we need more of other things, stop and frisk, uh, more police officers, et cetera, et cetera. I think what it is, it's a supremacist thing. You know, the things that would upset the apple cart as far as who has power, who's on top, those things are the things we don't want to make political because check it, natural disasters, right? Who can't recover from natural disasters? People without resources, right? Mm -hmm. Joel Alstein or whatever in Houston will be just fine no matter Mm -hmm. what happens, right? What's Mm -hmm. his name? Rush Limbaugh's home was destroyed in Florida. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's sad for him on a personal level, but he can afford another home and replace everything in that. But the people who cannot, we're going to have to help them out. Me as an individual through my taxes, will have to help them out. Meh, I want to keep my money. So therefore, let's not make what happened in Florida political. It was just a terrible thing that happened. Everyone needs to pick themselves up by their bootstraps and move on. Thoughts and prayers. Bye. That's how that line of thinking works. Same thing with gun violence. For some bizarre reason, Americans like guns. Even Americans who don't have guns like the idea that they could get guns. I I, I can't get involved with that. I don't know what that means. Recently, and I don't want to get too far, too much into the specifics here. Otherwise, this episode will be stale in moments. But usually people forget, like, healthcare is also connected to these gun violence things. Because it's like, some of the people who get shot in these things, like, how do they get help? If they survive, you know, how- oh, you know what? Did you know? I didn't know this. Let me just say, because gun violence is um, always around us and things come up all the time on Twitter. I did not realize that each state apparently has a fund that you can access if you are the victim of of, of like a, of a crime, but like of a particular tragedy in that way. Right. But it's never going to be enough. Right. It's never it's no. never enough. Right. Because healthcare is really expensive. It's a sort of nominal thing. See, that's what I think is so intriguing. The rejection of the politics being personal leads us to GoFundMe pages. Right. This is the whole strategy of the right. I want to help, but it should be based on my capacity and willingness to do so. I don't want mm-hmm. anyone to force me to do so. Yes. It's literally, well, it comes full circle. It's personal. Yes, it's a personal gift. So the reason why this question has been, I've been really thinking through it because obviously as a result of, you know, the new administration and the kind of distance the administration has taken towards sort of people, I raised the question to you, right? I think we were talking about this offline maybe a couple of weeks ago and I said, well, 
what is the solution now if people don't believe in the value of the government? What does a world look like where everything is sustained entirely through my personal interest in doing one thing over the other? Because I think what people forgot was that we had lived culturally. <laughs> like, think about this. We've been on Earth for a really long time. Societies have been on Earth for a really long time. And I think people forgot that the creation of a government was a sort of unified body to assist in making choices and doing things that the individual itself wouldn't be, you know, wouldn't be alone on, right? So mm-hmm. you don't have to pave the road down down the street from you, but I'm going to take your taxes, put it in a pot, and then I'm going to serve the entire community with this pot of money. And so all your roads are going to get paved. That's supposedly the model of government that we had all adopted. But if we're introducing a kind of like rogue individualistic economy, state, what have you, Then you end up with GoFundMe pages for people's like health crises. Do you know what I mean? Because because yeah. people don't understand that actually health people actually one of the things that I think has emerged this year is people fundamentally don't actually get the idea of health insurance. Not necessarily the particular aspects of it, but the whole the the model, which is that the healthy buttresses the sick mm-hmm. because at some point in time that's gonna flip. So it's like a pool right? That's the whole idea of a pool. But beyond health insurance, everything is a pool. Taxes are a pool. Yeah. I think really what people are actually doing is they're rejecting pooling resources to help their yeah. neighbors. No, oh, absolutely. Fundamentally. <laughs> Fundamentally. Your neighbors can take care of yourself. I can take care of myself. I mean, it's short-sighted. It's misguided. It's inaccurate. But it's the American way. But how do you debunk that? Because I think that people don't understand that that's really what's debunk happening. Debunk that? Well, what do you mean? Well, how do you how do you challenge those ideas when that's really the seat of it? That's the seat of what people are failing to understand. It's like, well, listen, honey, I've got a tractor. I could take care of this road here. But if you take care of your patch of land, but your neighbor can't, you're still going to have to pass your neighbor's patch of land <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> to get into town. <laughs> like it can't all be about who can afford what at any given moment. If you extrapolate it just a little bit, yes, you yeah. end up where you ended up. And it, that makes sense to me. But I think what's important to recognize is that there mm-hmm. are many people that does not make sense for the culture of like exile, domination, shunning. I can see like those would be the responses to, Oh, my neighbor can handle his land. I should just take it over. Like that seems more natural for our, our cultural moment than let me help my neighbor out or, That's Oh, well, my neighbor needs to raise money in order to make this happen. But I, I, I won't give any, it's, I don't know. I it's like, again, it's the hypocrisy of the right. These, these ideas of like, Oh, you can take care of yourself. You can make your own decisions unless you're a woman or a gay person or children or old people, or you need anything. <laughs> You know, so then, that's, so that's how that so, works. So if I, so okay, so if you walk that model out, which is to say, so then if the pol- if the politics is not personal, if politics is not personal, if that if the opposite is true, what's the natural extension of that society? If politics are not personal, what, yeah, 
like I'm saying politics is personal, right? We're saying that. We're saying that this is an understanding that we bring to the table so that your personal choices are going to actually impact others. They always do. If the opposite is true. So do we end up with a kind of vague model that we have now where it's like uh, it's a doggy dog world, every man yeah. for themselves? Okay. That's why I didn't understand your question. Because I'm like, yeah, of course, that's where we end up. You had said this a long time ago in a podcast is that we don't understand that our communities ourselves do not, we don't exist in isolation. So I, I think the example you'd used was the people in Beverly Hills don't understand that if Compton mm-hmm. falls off the map, that they will not be okay. That's not the way that works. They will not be okay, but they believe they would be. They be- Oh, because they have enough resources. They, exactly. They, they have but enough they don't, resources for it not to matter. They don't understand that whether they have resources or not, like the people and the community and the roads just in the Compton or nearby communities, that there's a lot that's intersecting to buttress them. Mm-hmm. We don't understand that people, it's this American thing where it's like, I got my shotgun, I got my rocking chair on my porch, I got my land. I know that feels really antiquated. That sounds really antiquated, but that's, it, that's the American feeling. We can handle ourselves. I don't need any of your help. Like this antagonism towards the federal government I think that's where it comes from. It's hyper individualism, though. To it's actually like it's individual on it's individualism on speed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it will um it will kill us all. All right. That's. I mean. Anyway, that was the that was the question that came up. I saw that phrase and I was like, I think I now understand it differently. Mm-hmm. The interior yeah. life piece is what I thought that um, Angela brought to the table which is that you yourself are being inculcated into believing something that actually helps dominant groups. Those invisible threads are hard. <laughs> Those invisible threads are hard for people who have benefited from white supremacy. Like, you, it's really, you can't or you sexism. jack out of the matrix. Yeah, or, or sexism. Sex, or or sexism. Any, any sort or of structures. Or rich people. It's really hard to see because you just make these decisions because they make sense. And they make sense because people have tried really hard to make sure they make sense to you. So, <gasps> so, so to go backwards and be like, wait a minute, wait a minute, and pull up those invisible strings, it's really difficult for people to do. I'm not excusing anyone. Everyone should do that work. I know I do that work all the time as a privileged person because I have my own privilege when it comes to like so economics or being a man or being cis, et cetera. You have to pull up those invisible strings. But I know they're there. A lot of people don't know that those strings are there. Yeah, it feels like their own thought. Yes. Wow, oh. we just jumped right into it. We we had zero time for banter. You know, this new world doesn't accommodate banter. We just it get kind right of doesn't. It, it really <laughs> doesn't. You know what? Okay, so next next topic. This is kind of the problem with this new world. You know, I I read the internet. I I read books. I read articles. But I feel like in the last six months, nine months, a year. All I read about is the politics of Trump. All I read about is how the world's going to shit because of Trump. It's really narrowing my focus and I, it feels dangerous to me. Like I feel like I used to have a, a breadth of attention or where I would put my attention. Like I was paying attention to a lot of things and I feel like it has come down so few topics, so few sound bites, and everything seems connected to Trump. And I don't know what... it's very frustrating to me uh, as a person who thinks about these topics, you know, race, media, culture, politics, 
it's all being grounded in this singular man, this singular moment, this singular administration. It worries me. I'm really curious what's happening in colleges. What do you mean? Could you imagine being in college at this time? Every Why? class you have. I just, what news story have you heard late, lately that wasn't connected to politics on a federal level? It seems, but this is also, this is also what our news outlets are doing, right? Because yeah. Trump is clicks, Trump is eyeballs. So every little thing, whether it be like the local school board, the decisions that they're making, like that article is going to name check Betsy DeVos at some point, right? Because you just <laughs> want to bring in the administration to, to those clicks and those eyeballs. But I think it's it's really, I don't think it's helpful to the population. We talk about news all the time on this show, but I don't think it's helpful for the populace to think about things that are happening locally and state in sort of the, this national context. Everything doesn't flow from Trump. Yes, he's creating a moment in time. Yes, he's creating a culture. But how do we get past that? How do we, I don't want to say go back because no one's going back, but how do we push past these headlines to talk about other things that are happening. We used to do it. We could do it. There were other things that happened. Or is this even a problem? I mean, should we be talking about Brump with tr- Brump? Should we be talking about Brump with every breath? <laughs> or not? What do you what do you think? Is it worthwhile to bring him into every fucking thing we're talking about? Actually, I think what it's revealed is similar to what we talk about and struggle with on this podcast is media consolidation. I think it rec- I think what we're starting to realize is how much consolidation is happening everywhere. And so when something happens one place, it necessarily ricochets on another. Because like for example, your local news station now, right? Your local news station which is now overwhelmingly many of them under the the control of Sinclair Group, right? Which we now know is highly sympathetic to Trump and has decided that they want to package local news in a way that is going to flavor the administration um, positively. So it's like you can't even avoid it because the people, the delivery system that might've allowed you to understand something extremely local is no longer exists. You know, it's kind of like, it's like local radio station. Do you remember what local radio stations were like? God, no. You know what I mean? I'm trying to forget. Radio is the worst. Right? Because think about it. You go into certain places now and you can't even get like a local station. Like you're like, the the meter doesn't register anymore. Radio became conglomerated. Exactly. And so it was actually packaged news sent out on the airways. So well, every now and then there was like yeah. a glitch in the matrix. Yes. I think someone, someone did this where they, there was one news story. Yes. I remember what the news story was but they show clip after clip after clip of local news anchors using the same exact phrasing to introduce the topic. Because that's, because that's actually what's happened. And so I actually think that that's part of the reason why it's been, it can be really difficult to get out from under this, like, I mean, dare I say it, the federalization of everything. Is it, is it detrimental though? Am I just whining because I'm sick of hearing about Donald Trump? Oh, I mean- Is this it, really useful? Well, and, and is it and is it so different than what was happening under Obama? You oh, know, just because totally, I, totally different. Okay, well, defend that because it's it's hard oh, for you me know to see. What? I was you know so pro Obama all the time. Yeah, you know what? You're probably right. I was just about to. I was just thinking about it because people, when people count, when people characterize the Obama years as like a. a God, I had to survive it. And we're like, we're all like, what are you surviving? Yeah. But maybe- I suffered under eight years of Obama. Now it's your turn. I was like, <laughs> exactly. I have multiple questions about that statement. 
but maybe that's what they felt. Maybe they felt like they were um, subsumed by the kind of Obamification of the world. And, you know, so maybe Obama was like diffused and everything, but because it was so on some level appealing to me, maybe I didn't know it. Maybe I didn't notice it. But because now I'm being confronted with something that's like whole, feels wholly different to me, maybe now I'm really conscious of it. So I don't know, you know, <laughs> maybe it's actually not a real thing. I don't know, but it feels it feels like it's slightly oppressive information. We need to get, we need to talk to a Trump supporter. If any of our listeners are Trump supporters, fuck you. <laughs> End oh of story. God, I thought I was going someplace different, but that's where I was headed. <laughs> fuck you. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I don't um I'm about to ask you a question. Okay. And I don't know. So we have historically we've had um an interesting back and forth about um trans people. People for a while in our friendship. We have. We've we have we've, wow, we've, we've had, had an evolution. We've had an evolution of it, right? So mm-hmm. um, similar to the question that was raised earlier on, God, Angela, thank you. Angela introduces this notion of feminism, which I thought, you know, because again, another term bandied about people, depending on what you think of it is, you reject it or accept it. You're like, I want to be a feminist. Uh, not the bra burning ones, though. You know what I mean? Like people have these <laughs> weird ideas about what it is. Exactly. <laughs> I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> So anyway, so so I'm reading I'm reading something from her, Angela, again, and she says, you know, realistically, feminism should have helped people understand and come to terms with trans people. And I was like, Whoa? Hmm? Hmm? <laughs> what does she mean? Think about but she's right. Well, how is she defining feminism? Because you're right. No, it's an only like- word. It's an omni word, but see, this is what she says, right? One of the things that wow, became- this book is giving you life. I wonder what your media recommendation is going to be. You know what? This is the thing, right? Because I had to get out of a certain place. Like all my ideas were being, I felt like I was trapped. And so having read this book, and I was actually saying to my sister, I was like, oh my God, this book is just like, my, my, brain's, my brain is like titillated right now. Like all parts of it were firing. And so, because she was introducing new ways to perceive old words, old ideas, and that's always useful, right? And this is what we're struggling with. It's like, I feel like I'm being subsumed by these things and I can't get out from under it. But having read her, I've just been thinking about so many different things this week. And she really made me think about feminism. So this is the thing. She says, feminism should have helped people think about more than gender equality. Feminism should have made you ask the question of what gender is, period. It should have given you the space to begin to question the very label of gender Mm -hmm. so that what you're having is you're not having this kind of like, I want to be equal to men. I mean, maybe that's a starting place, but what it should have allowed you to do was to ask the question, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? I would say the same thing about gay rights and the whole gay rights movement, the Stonewall Revolution. Is that yes. Those are the questions that weren't asked enough, you know, and the part of the storm revolution was that, you know, there were multiple groups who were moving towards gay rights. Yeah. And some of those groups, I mean, it's hard to say fringe because no, there was no mainstream group really. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, that's, that is not true. There were groups who were working very hard and had more access and resources, et cetera, et cetera. But some of those groups were like, you know, it's not about marriage rights. It's not about 
gay clubs or straight clubs. It's just about clubs and not policing them in this way and not policing relationships in this way and really blowing those things out. Same thing like you're saying. But those were those were not the movements that caught fire. But you see, but then it brought me back. And because you know what? Of course, in another chapter, she then raises the issue of how did the LGBTQ movement become about marriage equality? Yeah. It's a great and, question. Right? And then and then the then the other question necessarily from but how did feminine but how did feminism become about gender equality only in people's minds? Instead of actually attacking these structures that made gender a thing. Because right? it's easier it's easier to argue for and campaign for quote unquote equality. We want what men have than to attack the very basis of what being a man is. Because what being a man is is the foundation of the entire society. Right. So if it's just about throwing women some scraps, we can throw them scraps. Or not, as the case may be. But to actually get under into the foundation, that's just too much work for everybody. So that's not the fight that either side is going to choose. It's the valuable fight because this is why I feel like when I look at LGBTQ issues, I feel like the T and the Q has gotten lost. Oh, absolutely. I think the T, it's just the open antagonism towards trans people, both in violence, but just also within the community. Is that, you know, these issues are changing so fast when talking about gender and trans. And actually, I'm going to reframe that. It's not the issues are changing so fast. It's just that the public has had to catch up with what transgender people have been going through for so long. And it, it just seems like it's coming at us so much because we're listening now. And a lot of the information, it, it's hard to sort of incorporate immediately. And so there's resistance to that. It's not that things are changing so fast. I think that that framing is really dumb, if you ask me. But I think the, the open antagonism uh, towards that, the resistance to understanding trans people on every level. One, the LGB people are, those issues are different. They're just different because bound up in trans issues are medical issues. There's issues about gender. There's issues about access. And also trans people themselves by existing are attacking your ideas about what sex means, sexual relations, sexual orientation, gender orientation, and gender expression. Those are not things, like I said, those are foundational issues and we don't want to touch them. But aren't those things exactly the thing that made it easy for um, heterosexuals to reject gay people? That's what the core of what a gay person introduces into the space. Other things get bandied around, right? What does it mean to be masculine? What does it mean to be feminine? What does it mean to, what? It, what is sex? If sex is not between a man and a woman, and I'm now telling you, no, no I like same sex. I like the same sex as me. Do you know, mm-hmm. doesn't that give you room? It doesn't seem to me that those questions um, shouldn't have been asked by the LGBT community. Like it, what, it, what? what's strange to me is that those foundational issues were kind of abandoned a little bit. Which then made it seem the like they, they would never attempt it. Look, but, I mean, look, but those are but those are the central questions of rejection by heterosexuals. You're you're asking them to think about sex differently. You're asking them to think about gender differently. You're asking me to think about this conception of the world differently. How did that get lost? Well, the answer to them asking to think about those things differently was no. We don't want to. <laughs> but that then, was. But, that was <laughs> There it is. I, I, I'm asking you to think about gender differently. No, no, I don't want to. No. And so that's why it becomes like transgender people. It's just 
men who want to be women and women who want to be men. Because that, in, in my limited imagination, what gender is, that makes sense to me. As opposed to asking, well, what are men? What are women? But what, what does that mean? Like, no one wants to talk about that. That's hard on both sides. It was really, it was really interesting because it just made me realize that these movements, feminism, gay rights, and I guess in let's let's the original, the originator of it all, the civil rights movement, were about these foundational questions that have been sort of slyly renegotiated. Uh, not so and slyly. Massaged. I mean, if you think about the LGBT uh, marriage movement. Um, it was very purposeful. They they knew exactly what they were doing because they 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 conceded that okay, we're not going to be able to break down your ideas of family and marriage and relationships. Okay, what do you understand? You understand wanting to get married? Great. So I want to get married too. So then the whole thing became about marriage, which is very much heteronormative, right? Yeah. It fits neatly into society and it gets you some scraps without having to deal with the foundational issues. Now, my question is this. Will we ever deal with the foundational issues? What does that society look like? Can we ever be that society or is that a fantasy? I would love to ask the questions and dissolve some of these things that we have. I just don't think they're useful. So then, um, so this so this is the thing, right? Again, oh, thank you, Angela. We're going to dedicate this entire podcast to Angela. Angela Davis, are you listening? Oh, <laughs> Because I think this this raises the question she asked around the civil rights now. What did we concede about civil rights? And I guess this is what I think this is, you know, one of the things that actually came out of this book was that I really wanted to suddenly write fantasy fiction. Suddenly I understood maybe why you would want to posit like 200 years into the future and recreate an environment where some of these fundamental questions were spun on its head so that I could see what it looked like, which mm-hmm. I feel is kind of what's necessary because if you're sort of moored, mired, sorry, in the present, you might want to give yourself space to see what this future looks like, right? So of course, one of the things that Angela says, and of course I hadn't even, you know, she says, why do we have to say we want better policing? What kind of a future would we have if we said we wanted no policing? And I couldn't even like, like, my mind, my mind is blown. You know what I mean? But like, it was like, and you know, like, she's like, what if, why do we want better prisons? What if we just didn't want prisons? And it's like, Mm -hmm. it's suddenly like, you know what I mean? Suddenly I was like, okay. Like I suddenly wanted to write a novel. Because, because do it right because then you're because this is i mean this is the futurist question right like the the framing of this like so that's why i can understand why someone would say let's reshuffle the decks entirely because part of i think our challenge and i the question you raise about the trump question is are we stuck asking the same questions yes we're stuck asking the same questions right i think we're stuck asking the same questions i, I mean more for me i feel like it's really frustrating I feel like you and I are stuck in the same groove talking about stuff, the same stuff, like from different angles, because we're trying to tackle how to get to those foundational questions. And we just can't. It's just too hard. It's too hard to ask those questions like, okay, you know, Black Lives Matter. They had a lot of things that they wanted 
to do. But the thing that I'm always like, I was always like, what? When they're like, well, we want all everyone to have body cams. Yep. And I was like, wait a minute. What is that going to do? Right. Mm-hmm. So that's going to make them think twice about being racist and abusive. Like, what if we just didn't have cops who are racist or abusive? That's hard to like, do. Is, is there something else that we can do instead of investing in body cap? Like, what if we just didn't put these assholes on the force? And then the other question is that, okay, what is the police force's function? Yep. And then eventually you get to why police? Like, what are the police for? Who do yep. they work for? To what ends? To what goals? But, you know, that's that's digging all the way down. But that, that's that's my thing is that we get confused and distracted by these these other things, and we don't really consider that the world that we built mm-hmm. can be unbuilt and it can be reshuffled, like you said. Yeah. And I, I, that's just my own personal frustration with this moment is that I feel locked in this current moment and I don't enjoy it. I don't. I want to be able to talk about other things and not have it be drawn to Trump. You know, looking around, it, here's some of the sausage of how outrageous gets made. Looking around for topics for this podcast, everything I found that I was remotely interested in the catalyst of that thing or where the discussion would take us would be talking about Trump in the current moment and Republicans and Trump voters. And I, I'm just sick to death of it. They're not the center of the universe. Maybe we should just leave the U S for a while and see what happens. No, no, yeah, I'm, I'm leaving. Actually. You know what? I'm, I'm actually you know taking what? a trip. So when I come back, maybe I'll have interesting things to say. No, but you know what? You can't because what do you, what do you think is going on in Catalonia? Oh, I'll be there in a week. So I'll let you know. Exactly. Oh, that's interesting, right? You're going to Barcelona, right? In yeah. The middle, in the middle of this moment that they're having. I, you know, at first I was like, oh my gosh. I was like afraid. But then I was like, I know I'm safer overseas no matter what is happening there. <laughs> so I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> fine. But it, 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 it's interesting to be over there. No. Um, so in the in the spirit of always um, trying to engage my mind differently, I watching an episode of Seth Meyers, which I don't really watch, but um, it's, does he have a late show? Is that what oh he right? Oh my god! Right, Seth Meyers from SNL. It's from SNL, but he has a late show, right? Yeah, but I don't watch the late show. I was just watching a clip. So of course, Tennessee Coates has a new book out. And um, he is going to go on the circuit. And so the new book is, I think it's called We Were Eight Years in Power. Damn it. And I just... The busiest Black man in America. I mean, strangely not as busy because actually the book is sort of like a a rebranding of a series of articles that he's written over the last eight years. So each article represents like a particular year in Obama's presidency. So the first article is like from like 2008-ish. So, and then it's going to take us all the way through 2016, I believe. So it's actually, the book itself is basically a series of Atlantic Monthly articles. Mm -hmm. And he like frames it and introduces each article. And then at the end, he's going to kind of then wrap it all up. That's at least my understanding of the book. I just read the very first chapter, which funny enough, can I tell you, the first chapter was about Bill Cosby and Bill Cosby's pound cake tour that he did. Mm-hmm. Remember that tour that Bill Cosby was doing where he was like basically like lambasting black people for their lack of yeah, progress? Yeah. Yeah. But that was happening just before Obama was going to be elected as president, mm-hmm. which is ironic. It, one of the things that comes out of that article is that Bill Cosby was really conflicted about Obama, like didn't like him at all, which I think is interesting. 
so Tanisi Coates is on Seth Meyers, and he um, Seth Meyers says, "Well, you know, one of the things that you, one of the charges lobbied at you is that you're always uh, you're hopeless. You know, you do you see any do you see any hope for the future after Tanisi has just given us like a historical retread? Then Seth is like, "Whew, this is dark, dark, dark. Give us some hope. <laughs> give us some hope, please, because <laughs> you know that's black people's job. We got to give people hope. You guys have right. suffered the most." But yet you still so remain. Bagger Vance. Yes, Bagger Vance. You're so cheerful. So give me some room for hope. because And then he introduces the thing that I think has been the rallying cry for the right. Well, you know, at some point in the future, whites are going to be the minority. Yeah, you know, that's like a fear trigger, right? What do you think of that? Well, how will that change things? And then Tanahisi lobs right back. Well, definitions of whiteness have changed throughout the years. The mm. Irish weren't always white. The Italians weren't always right. So the question becomes, who's going to be white next? So that you will always be able to hold that number. That's what I thought suddenly. So then it made me think about, what do you, how do you think whiteness is going to reshape itself? Has whiteness reshaped itself in the modern era? Yes. The, the, it, exactly the point. The modern era has been, is, was 1920s, 1930s, 40s, Italians, 1890s. That's it. That's, it's within the last hundred years. It's funny because I still think of the modern era as you do, because that's what we understood when we were in school, right? Because at that point, it was just 70 years before. But I mean, it's 2017 now. Since the 60s, which is now almost 60 years ago, have we reshaped whiteness? The people who were white in 1960, the people who were non-white, would you agree that those people are still white and non-white? I think there was a process being engaged with Latinos recently. I think Latinos... To make some them Latinos, white. I think some Latinos are able to were able to pass for white mm-hmm. and engage with white cultures, but that didn't make them white. Just like some black light-skinned black people were able to go, as my dad would say, incognito. It didn't make <laughs> them white. They were just able to claim whiteness when it benefited them. But what we're talking about is actually reshaping what white means. I mean, I think in the last hundred years. You know, Jews, Italians, and Irish all became white people, mm-hmm. but not not in the what I think of the modern era. Which, and this is this is not connected to anything academic. It's just that when I think of the modern era, I always see us we entered a new age mm-hmm. in the late fifties. So that for me, I'm always like, that's we're in a new chapter of American history that started sometime in the sixties, and I feel like it's ending sometime soon. <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, so to answer your question and thinking about whiteness, like will whiteness change? Like, yes, but I'm trying to chart the effect, like how it might change. And the only thing I could say is that like, I'm not certain with our history of immigration and antagonism towards our Southern neighbor that mm-hmm. Latinos are going to, are going to be able to claim whiteness or that white people are going to open their arms up to Latinos. The difference between now and the 1890s and the 1920s um, when we brought Irish and Italian on board onto the white train, the difference mm-hmm. now is that we've had a hundred years since then of doubling, tripling, and quadrupling down on skin color racism. Mm-hmm. And it's not so much about language. It's not so much about culture. It's really just about skin color. We we see this when like after any Muslim attack or any news from the Muslim world about violence or antagonism, there's always some poor Sikh cab driver who gets attacked here in New York City. It's not because culture is immaterial. Right. It's just about, well, you're dark, they're dark. Let's go. So it's I think it's an interesting question. I I honestly don't know. I don't think it's going to be like the past where they just check a box and decide 
you know, like, oh, okay, well, Argentinians are now white. I think if the Ar- Argentinians are, are light enough and submit to white supremacy, perhaps. But again, I don't, that's not really becoming white. Like people do that all the time. Like Asians do that. Uh, Cubans do that. No, um, but it, I mean, but I think it happened in a really specific way. Cause I mean, one of the things that, you know, when you look at sort of like um, research on like becoming white in the United States, I think the group that they often use um, to talk about are Polish people. Mm-hmm. When Polish people came en masse in the 1900s, they were rapidly, dis- you know, discriminated against. At some point in time, their numbers became sort of overwhelming enough that an offer was made that, okay, well, there's going to be distinguishing groups. Like, are you dark enough? Are you light enough? Those kinds of color things that you're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. And then what ends up happening is you integrate yourself into groups of existing whites. So then you start, you know, you mar- intermarry, you move out of these like Polish enclaves and what and enter into other spaces where you lose the traces of your ethnicity. You know, you you subtly change your name, you move into this. That's how that's how it become. That's how immigrants become white. So in a weird way, I'm wondering if what ends up coming out of this particularly dark moment is that Latinos who are kind of the light Latinos, because you do know that there is some tension between light and dark Latinos. I mean, even in the black community, we have that same colorism. But but different. But it's different because because Latinos who are light is not the same as blacks who are light. Mm -hmm. Latinos who are light can actually pass as white. And if you marry and move into certain spaces, there's nothing to stop you from actually tagging in the census I am now white, particularly because you know what? The census plays a part in defining whiteness. I mean, the census, the guy who was like director of this or uh, of the census bureau, he left. And mm-hmm. so when you take the census and you're, when you're not taking an accurate census, because this was the interesting thing about kind of like creating the Latino block was having the, having the check boxes that then say you are Latino, non-white. That mm-hmm. was, that was a key win. Because if you say Latino non-white, that's a separate group. But what if I take away that line, Latino non-white, and I only give you Black, White, Asian? Where, what box are you checking? What happens with that number? And if you're now tagged as white, might you not sort of blend in and begin to enter those spaces, marry, adopt certain ideology, that's what happens with the Polish. So like when you look at something that emerged with like the white supremacist movement, when you think about the original nature of who like the KKK were, you're looking at people who now bandy about and say that they are members of the KKK. They would have been rejected in sort of the original <laughs> crafting mm-hmm. of the KKK. But now you have people who have become white over time who inhabit those spaces. I think it raises a question of like, if you are able to successfully shift certain spaces, like what happens in the census, collapse certain categories. Cause that's what, that's what's valuable about the census is, you know, you, it gives you a count of Americans, but at the same time, it gives you um, lobbying power. Find yourself as well. Yeah, it gives you room to define yourself. It gives you lobbying power. And then it it also decides resources for Mm -hmm. you. I think one of the successful achievements we know from the the late 90s was like 
getting Latinos to successfully see themselves as a kind of block of group of people, even though they have disparate histories, right? Mexicans, mm -hmm. this, uh, yeah. But if you, because, because of that subtle shift in the categorization in the census, which is Latino, non-white, mm -hmm. you shift that around, suddenly the numbers start playing out differently. Suddenly when you say to me, oh, you know, uh, in 2050, there are going to be more people. Nope, no, they're not. Because who are going to be those people of color? Latinos. Yeah. But what if that count changes? I think what you're bringing up is interesting. I don't see it happening for Latinos in that way. Well, how do you see it happening? But although, I mean, one of the reasons why we needed groups to become white was to continue the oppression of certain people in the country, right? Yes. That's always yes. been the situation. Yes. That was the situation all the way back to the Revolutionary War, mm -hmm. right? Those indentured white servants, they had to elevate them in yes. some way, socially, above the Blacks and the Native Americans, because yes. they needed to make sure, not so much to swell their numbers against Blacks and Native Americans, although that also was there, but mm -hmm. also to really double down on the caste system as it existed, yes. right? And get those poor whites to buy into it. Yeah. If it happened for Latinos, mm -hmm. first of all, it couldn't happen for all Latinos, right? Mm -hmm. It would have to be select groups of them. So I'm trying to think about like what, how white are, but spread. Uh, but there are, but there yeah. are. There are. You some. know, you know it. There yeah. are, right? Because this is, this is the thing that happened with that. This is the this is the massive incidence and that tension that happened between dark Latinos, which are more indigenous, from mm -hmm. more indigenous groups. Yeah. So I guess the question for me is that why and in what way would whiteness need to double down and enforce their subjugation of other people? That's the only time they open the gate. There was in because you do it logistically. You, the numbers, the numbers require it now. It's going to be sly, and it's going to happen slowly. And I mean, I'm really intrigued by what you're saying. It's going to. I think in America, it's going to happen slowly. In other places, it happened quite suddenly. In Australia, it happened suddenly. A um, hundred years ago, was it a hundred years ago? Or well, at, at the end of the last century, Australia, they didn't want any more Asian people in Australia. Everyone fact checked this, but I think my facts correct. So there was a whole discussion in the Australian government because they were like encouraging white people to come to Australia to live. Mm -hmm. And there was a whole discussion. They should extend their hand to Italians. Were they white enough? That was an actual discussion. Then they mm -hmm. decided, yes, because they needed the numbers, because they needed laborers. Yes, Italians, you're white. Come on down. And that served their purposes of swelling their numbers, but at the same time doubling down the fact that Asians are not white. So if they, if white decides to claim Latinos, it's going to be double down the idea that there are people who are definitely not white. And I feel like that's definitely going to be black people. I, definitely not white. But then also you're going to, you're going to double down on other groups of Latinos. You're going to say Argentinians are white, but not Mexicans. Yeah, not Colombians. Not, not, you know what I mean? Like you're going to, you're going to play with historical tensions. The thing though, is you can't, what you need is mm -hmm. you can't have like a Bannon head that up. No. His, no, but, but, but what you need is, but see, this is the lesson because you know one of the things that I think um, somebody said was if people are if people were able to figure out how to do this better, this wouldn't chafe as much. So you can't use a bannon, but you could use a, a better version of a bannon to move that, to, to, you know, to move mm -hmm. that needle in the right direction. It's good. Good luck, whiteness. That's all I'm going to say. Good luck to but whiteness I mean, because like, I, I feel like I, the last hundred years, what white has been, what white is, has been really defined. 
I don't think so. It's be, I think it's I, more. I, I think it's, I, I think it moves. I think it's been very. I don't. I think it's actually been really quite mobile. But and, it hasn't um, moved in the last seventy years. It hasn't so, moved in the last seventy point. years. But the seventy years been, before that, it moved tremendously, and I that's know, my but, point. But that's the point, though. If it if it did the, the previous seventy years, why can't it return to that place? Because what? Okay. Because what we've had in the last 70 years has been the last 70 years of it not moving, right? So we've had now two whole generations of people who are very certain about what whiteness is, what it looks like, and how it moves in the world, et cetera, right? I think, the people, I think they can the be before that. Well, I think they could be moved. We're about to That's find out. Question. That's the question. Can it be moved? And I think it can. I really think, I think it can I be think, moved. You're I saying it it, can, you think it can be easily moved? I think you can move it, especially be, especially as you have like increasing um, refugee crises mm-hmm. and you have an increasingly number of people that can be um, made um, persecutable. I think you can really begin to move those things. You can really shift those things around. And I think you already see elements of that happening now with different bands. Right now it's extending to Muslims, but you can easily start playing with those, 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 um, those designations about who is um, who is worthy of being persecuted and who isn't. You know what I mean? It's like, I see that becoming actually maybe not as easy as it was in the 70s because in hindsight, it feels like it was easy. You know, maybe it was just as difficult when they were changing the polls into white. Maybe it seemed impossible because these people were beaten up. <laughs> I mean, like, they arrived on the shores and people were beating them up. I mean, same thing with the Irish. I mean, the exactly. Irish had a hard time in this country, their country, all around the world. But then we all, you know, whiteness took a sigh and said, okay, come on home. And <laughs> that was that. You know, and I'm sure it wasn't easy for those Irish who had to suffer. For the ones that, that, that marched yeah. ahead, right? But if, sure the, but if the prize is worth it, if the prize is worth it. Well, I... Hmm. I want to table this discussion. I'm going to make a note and we're going to talk about this one year from today. Okay. I'll tell you something. I see where you're going. I understand what you're saying, but I don't I mean, think I it's going to be easy. I think, um, <laughs> I like how you ended with like, I don't know. I, don't I mean, know no, I mean, I'm, I, I believe what I'm saying, but I, I mean, I am looking back at history and projecting ease onto it. So I don't know. Yeah, as we always do, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> let's <laughs> let's move on to media recommendations, which is something you've seen, heard, or experienced. You think other people should see, hear, or experience? I'm going to go first. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, season four of Transparent has come out, which is the Amazon Prime show. Yes, they have shows. Uh, I think just this one. <laughs> I don't know if they have. Other well, I shows. think they have others. <laughs> they have that. They have that Nazi show, The Man the in the Castle? High Castle. I think that's oh, also yeah. them. Anyway, Transparent is the story of this uh, Jewish family living in uh, California, in, in Los Angeles. And the, the series starts with the patriarch of that family. The 70-year-old father announces that he is actually trans and that she is going to go by Mara and just what happens in that family. Three or four seasons in, I'm just going to go out and say this. I've been, I've been saying this all week. This is probably, it's probably one of the best shows on television, whatever that means, that I've seen in the last few years. And wow. I know, I know. You know, the thing about when I watch a, a family drama about white people, especially, because like, although I know white people and I've been in white people's homes and et cetera, et cetera, like, and this this might surprise actually white listeners because of white supremacy, but like, there's still 
still at my age, there's still elements of whiteness that are alien to me. Like I don't understand, especially a lot about the family life. I, I kind of don't get it sometimes. And when I watch a show with white people, it can be very alienating and off-putting if I can't really find any corner of their experience that makes sense to me. Now, what the Soloways do with this show is that like, even though like a lot of these family dramas, the most of the characters are selfish and entitled and demanding, but what the Soloway, Jill Soloway is able to capture is like these little moments that remind you that these people are family. At least it reminds me of what family looks like. Like they don't always like each other. They're not always likable, but they love each other. The topics the show tackles really well is around sexuality and gender, around just general family issues, sibling issues, parental issues, and um, Jewishness. Hmm. The, the, the shows can be so Jewish, like this family is so Jewish, um, which as a New Yorker, I always wonder how the rest of the country, if the rest of the country is watching this, because there's there's elements to, to Jewishness that is only going to make sense to you if you're familiar with Jews. And so I, if you haven't seen Transparent, you should absolutely watch it. Like, I think it's, it's great. It's the show that consistently gets me crying. Mm. Uh, yeah. It's really, there are some moments of it that are so beautiful and raw and heartfelt. And you really feel for these characters. And my last thing I want to say about Transparent is that Judith Light, who plays Shelly, the mother, needs every single award that we make. They love she, her. Why do she, people love her so much? You know what's funny? Do you watch the show, Trish? No. You can watch the whole show just for her performance. She is magical in creating this character. It's just magical. You root for her. She inhabits every aspect of it. It's 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 amazing. So transparent. Trisha, I urge you to watch it. And it's quick, too. It's like every season's like eight or nine episodes, eight or ten episodes, and it's half-hour shows. So wow. you can literally watch it in an afternoon. Like, it goes really fast. So, I mean, I feel like my recommendation already wrote itself because <laughs> I've referenced it. <laughs> so, I mean, that's what, I've, that's what I've read this week, and I absolutely... Well, okay, like, well, tell people, because we've been referencing it. But... I'm about to. So, you know, I... So I'm going to recommend this book, Angela Davis's book, Freedom is a Constant Struggle. Ferguson, Palestine, and the Foundations of a Movement. I find it very readable. I read it in like maybe two hours in one sitting. The first half are a series of interviews by a reporter. And then the second half of the book are basically speeches that she has given at, at various points in time. I just found the book rife with new ways of conceiving of old questions, which was exhilarating. It was exhilarating to kind of get out of the box. And the way that she frames issues, the, ra- the way that she um, frames enduring issues, racism, mm-hmm. sexism, feminism, all of the kind of key touch points, she's able to ask questions in such a way that I think you arrive at a new place which I think has got to be um, the gift of a book is that you don't feel like it's flat. That in some sense, having read it, she opened up the whole world to me. And so she's actually just excited me this whole week because I've been contemplating all the sort of framing that she's offered to me. And I think it'll do the same. I mean, I hope it'll do the same for you. I hope anybody who picks up this recommendation, it's, but you know, one thing somebody said to me, which I thought was hilarious. I'm at a college right now. And this book is actually the college read the entire Mm -hmm. college. The freshman class is going to read it. And then you are expected to read it as faculty and staff if you want to. And then they're going to be 
series of discussions throughout the year. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned to a colleague, I was like, oh, this book is so readable. And she says, not for freshmen. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, do freshmen understand what neoliberalism is? I mean, there are some, I think what, what what's noteworthy about the book is I think, I think if you've lived a long time, the book makes more sense. So I think that that's, 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 that's <laughs> probably, that's, that's, that's probably, probably always true. That's probably all. always true. Right. But I, I was the, you know, I was presuming a certain groundingness of knowledge, but I, mm-hmm. I think the reason why they offer the book for freshmen is because they feel like freshmen would have a conception of Ferguson and they would probably yeah. need to contextualize Ferguson within a larger struggle. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the one of the major points that she attempts to make is to show the connection between Ferguson and Palestine and the police response in Ferguson and the Israeli response to the Palestine. Because one of the things one of the one of the nuggets she shares is that many people in the police force are trained by Israeli security forces. Interesting. Very. So, um, wow. Okay. What's the name okay. of the book again? The name of the book is Freedom is a Constant Struggle. It's red. Freedom okay. is a Constant Struggle, Ferguson, Palestine, and the Foundations of a Movement. I highly recommend it. It's a great read. When you're on your flight, take it. All and then right. you can pass it on. You know, you can buy it and pass it on if you're one of, I have a paper copy, but I know you, electronic monster. I mean, it's just like, Paper <laughs> books. But I'll tell you this much. I don't like reading digitally. But my God, it just makes sense. It's in your pocket so all the time. I don't need to carry so a bag. So easy. Like, it's so easy. And I've just had to train myself to, to read it. Just like I had to train myself to not use a physical keyboard. I found my own blackberry <laughs> the other day. Oh, my God. I used to type so freaking fast on that thing. Now my thumbs are too fat. I can't. Oh, I, I won't even, um, listeners, I won't even go into the, the difficulty I had transitioning from my BlackBerry many years ago. Oh, <laughs> it took me a really was a long time. Device. You know, if they just had a, ugh, I should just buy a BlackBerry and just connect it just to my email. Do you, remember, do, you remember, now. do you remember when Obama, that was one of the big things about when Obama first became president was he had to give up his BlackBerry because the security features were so difficult, but he really struggled. I was like, I know you, Obama. I know. You know what? <laughs> Poor BlackBerry, because what a terrible, what terrible negative press that is. BlackBerry, not secure enough for the president. (laughs) And now we realize it didn't even matter. You two can get private emails. You can have private emails and do what you want. (laughs) This kleptocracy that we live in, you can do what you want, take what you want. (laughs) Honey, get on a private jet. Honey, make (laughs) for it. As Michelle Obama Um, said, the bar is getting <laughs> yeah. The, just, where the bar? It moves. Where's the bar now? Floor. The floor bar level? is on the floor, rolling around, <laughs> kicked into the corner. There's no bar. People are just running, <laughs> running through the limbo poles like it's not a big deal. No bar. I'm gonna end this podcast by rededicating myself to exploring, exploring current events, exploring local events, um, with a little bit more attention to detail when you give over news collection to like these concerns and agencies like Facebook and the rest of them is yep. that we already know how that works. You're going to get delivered the same thing over and over and over again, because it knows what you're clicking on. It gives you the same thing. Like yep. you really have to seek out news. And that's what I want to do. Like I, I want to understand the nail on the head. 
You've hit the nail on the head, Chris. That's why you feel same. That's why the sameness, because the Facebook algorithm works that way. Yep. And it's not just Facebook. It's all of the internet. The whole internet works that way. Like it knows what I'm looking at. It knows that I, I wake up in the morning and I NPR, I click on that, the latest Trump bullshit he did. And then my whole phone registers that across platforms like, Oh, and then that's what happens. So everyone out there, like you have to explore, don't passively take news in. Like it's not good for you. Um, That's really not good for me. And that's what this is about. All right. I am going to get on with the rest of my day. I suggest you do the same. Will do. Until next time. See you later. See ya. Bye.